<coughs> for a basic course in uh, emotional awareness. We're thinking about making sense of our emotions, or we could say making sense of how we feel. I'll be using the words emotions and feelings interchangeably. I'm wondering if it's a little bit dark. Does it seem like it's dark? Maybe not. So we'll be using emotions and feelings interchangeably as roughly amounting to the same thing. And in this series, we're going to try to make sense of them. And I believe it's an important thing to do because especially as Christians, we can be troubled by our emotions. Maybe we wonder if the way we feel is the way a Christian is supposed to feel. See if this describes you at all. Christians often see negative emotions, the ones we would describe as feeling bad, as signs of spiritual failure. Anxiety is proof that you don't trust God. Grief is failure to rest in God's good purposes for your life. Anger is just plain old selfishness. It seems that Christians are never only dealing with negative emotions. Instead, every dark feeling also carries with it a sense of spiritual failure, guilt, and shame about having that dark feeling. Does that ring any bells for you? We can be troubled by our emotions, and we can be suspicious of them, as if they're intruders in our lives, and we'd be better off without them. On the other hand, some of us can end up being ruled by our emotions, to the point where how we feel about something is all that matters to us. If we feel good about it, it must be good. If we feel bad about it, it must be bad. So as human beings and as Christians, we need to try and make sense of emotions. So what I plan to do in this series is, first of all, to think about five truths about emotions. We'll look at just two of those today, three next time. And then we'll think about how we can nurture and develop godly emotions. And after that, we look at several specific emotions, such as anger and fear. So that's at least five sessions. We might even do a couple more. But to begin with, five truths about emotions. They're good, they're complicated, they're powerful, they are not the main thing, and they are mirrors of the heart. Today, we're just going to focus on the first two of those, and then we'll have time for questions or comments before we eat together. But let's pray at this point and ask God to help us. Father, we don't want to be people who just believe the right things and do the right things, as important as that is. We also want to be men and women who submit our emotions to you, our feelings. So as we try to think carefully about this, as we try to think in line with your word, I pray that you will help us. And some of us here this afternoon may be having struggles with our emotions. I pray that you will help us as well. And as we seek to spend time over the next few months uh, thinking about this, we pray that you will lead us into greater conformity to your son Jesus. And we ask this for your glory. Amen. So first of all, emotions are good. 
Now, when I say that, I don't mean that every emotion we feel is always an appropriate emotion for the situation we're in. We'll see later that emotions are complicated. But by saying emotions are good, I mean the presence of emotions in our lives is a good thing. Emotions are a good gift from God. Our lives would be impoverished without them. An English writer called Graham Bynan says, a life of pure facts would be pretty dull. As we do our work, live in our families, pursue our hobbies and spend time with our friends, we feel things. Facts are black and white. Feelings mean we live life in color. Now granted, we might not always like the color. We might often wish we felt differently. But to not feel at all, to live an emotionless life, that would be to live a lesser life than God intended for us. Emotions are part of being human. They're part of what it means to be made in the image of God. God made us to feel because he feels. And for some of us, this is a key point for us to get hold of. Randy Alcorn puts it like this. Our emotions are derived from God's. We are made in his image. Therefore, our emotions are a reflection of, and sometimes because of our sin, a distortion of God's emotions. To be like God means to have and express emotions. Emotions are part of our God-created humanity, not sinful baggage to be destroyed. Feelings aren't part of the curse. They're part of how God made human beings from the beginning. That's important. Yes, our emotions may have been distorted by sin, but they did not come about because of sin. God created us to feel because he feels. As we read God's revelation of himself in scripture, we find God expressing his feelings very openly and very frequently. To aspire after an emotional life is to want to deny part of our God-given humanness. We're not simply logical computers, and God never intended us to be. And I want to try and prove that to you now by looking at the one perfect human being. In the New Testament, we have four accounts of Jesus' life, four Gospels, and they show us not a man who is detached and unmoved, like the caricature of a Buddhist monk. Jesus was emotional. He felt deeply, and he felt appropriately. Unlike us, his emotions were not distorted by sin in any way. So looking at his life will not only show that human beings were intended to feel, looking at his life will also show how we were intended to feel. If you and I had no sin, we would feel the way Jesus did. So here's a sample of how he felt. The first one will be no surprise to us. Luke chapter 10, verse 21, describes Jesus as full of joy in a particular situation. It won't surprise us either to hear Jesus described as feeling love. Mark chapter 10, verse 21 says, he looked at the rich young man who came to speak to him, and as he looked at him, Jesus loved him, Mark tells us. Jesus also felt 
compassion. This is the emotion the Gospels mention most often regarding Jesus. Matthew 9, 36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Matthew 20, verse 34, says he has compassion on the blind man at the side of the road. Luke chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, mentions the widow of Nain. Her only son has just died. And Luke tells us, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And closely connected to this is the emotion of sadness. Luke 19, 41 tells us, when Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And famously, he wept also at the grave of his friend Lazarus. It's in John chapter 11. But then maybe more surprisingly to us, Jesus felt frustration. It's worth looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 13. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them. Graham Bynan says about that passage, Jesus has been tested by the Pharisees who won't believe in him. They've seen plenty of works, and they should believe, but instead they resist and demand more proof. Jesus' response is to sigh deeply. That translation doesn't quite capture the essence. It has the sense of a deep groan from the heart. He is frustrated and exasperated with them, and so he should be. In fact, he's so frustrated, he walks away from them. Two more emotions. Jesus felt anger. Again, it's worth looking at this. In Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees are again trying to test Jesus, to trap him. In this case, it's about what things are lawful on the Sabbath. Jesus notices a man in the synagogue with a shriveled hand. He asks the man to stand up. And then Mark tells us, Then Jesus asked them, that's the Pharisees, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. The sinless son of God was angry at the stubborn hearts of the Pharisees. And he was right to be angry. Mark tells us Jesus' anger was accompanied by deep distress. That's the last emotion We'll mention. We find Jesus distressed again in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night before he died on the cross, Mark tells us he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. So even with just that very brief look at Jesus' life, I hope we can see, 
if we've been living with the idea that some emotions are unacceptable for Christians, then we need to think again. If Jesus felt the full range of emotions, then they are not unacceptable. They're not a sign of spiritual failure. And I will see later, it's very possible to have emotions that are wrong in a given situation. For example, if we feel joyful about someone else's failure, or if we feel angry about their success, then we are feeling the wrong emotion in those situations. But Jesus shows that all emotions can be appropriate in certain situations. In his case, his sadness was tied to people's suffering. His anger and frustration was tied to people's stubborn unbelief, and so on. Jesus lived the perfect emotional life, not because he was emotionless, but because he always felt the right emotions at the right time. It's important. Not because he was without emotion, but because he always felt the right emotions at the right time. We could go on, we're not going to, but we could look at the emotional life of the Apostle Paul. His letters are full of emotion. Read, for example, 2 Corinthians. Or we could spend time in the Psalms. The book of Psalms has been described as a manual of spirituality. The church father Athanasius said, most of scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. If that's true, then they teach us it's appropriate for God's people to experience and to express the full range of emotions. The Psalms have it all. Joy, fear, anguish, hope, disgust, awe, loneliness, and more. If the Psalms speak for us, then they teach us not to suppress our emotions. They teach us emotions are not a sign of immaturity, exactly the opposite, in fact. Alistair Groves says this. It's a long quotation, but I think it's worth listening to because it's helpful. The Bible teaches over and over again that sadness, anger, dismay, and even fear have a good and right place. Most of us are deeply uncomfortable with negative feelings and assume something is wrong with us whenever we do feel sad or mad or bad. Surely we think if we just had more faith, a better perspective, more strength of character, we wouldn't feel this way. Or at the very least, we'd get over it faster. The Bible takes a radically different view. Unlike our assumption that the most faithful people will be the most carefree and emotionally upbeat, Scripture is full of aching, grieving saints who tear their clothes and sit in the ashes when their world gets upended. The basic logic in the Bible is this. If you care about others and the kingdom of God in this world, you will be and you should be full of sorrow when you or those you love are injured suffer loss or die. You ought to feel angry at the presence of injustice. Your heart should beat faster when your family is in danger. As counterintuitive as it seems, awful feelings like grief can actually be exactly the right feelings to have. 
feelings that honor God and would be wrong not to feel. Human beings should be distressed by what is distressing, horrified by violence and abuse, deeply concerned, we'd call it anxious, about the possibility of injury to someone or something we love, angry at arrogant injustices, to not feel grief when someone we love dies, to not feel discouraged when we find ourselves falling into the same pattern of sin yet again, to not be upset when our children lie or hurt each other would be wrong. You were made in the image of God himself, and that means you were made to see the world as he sees it, to respond as he responds, to hate what he hates, and to be bothered by what brings him displeasure. That doesn't mean that godly grief or righteous anger or holy discouragement will feel pleasant. It does mean that a whole host of uncomfortable feelings can be deeply godly, right, and holy. Emotions are good, even the uncomfortable ones. Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, and he went as far as to say, if the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. Those who have little religious affection have very little religion. And the word affection there is roughly the same as what we would call emotion or feeling. And the reason that true living religion involves affections or emotions is because true religion involves sharing in the heart of God, loving what he loves and hating what he hates, being angry at what makes him angry, feeling some of his love and compassion and his joy. You and I could never out-emote God. One writer has pointed out that God is both the angriest and the most tender person in the Bible. Think about that for a moment. God is both the angriest and the most tender person in the Bible. So then, being unmoved and emotional is not a Christian virtue. And being a Christian, one thing we should want to see is growth in our feelings so that we feel more like Jesus felt. So we are not aiming at a detached, calm, unruffled Christianity, but at Christianity in full emotional color. Emotions are good. And they are also complicated. It's an understatement. They're very complicated. Graham Bynan has suggested we can divide emotions into what we could call pure emotions, moods, and attitudes. So, for example, surprise is a pure emotion because we have little or no control over it. If something startles you, you automatically feel surprised. We call it a pure emotion because our thoughts and our beliefs are not involved in that second. If you find a mouse in your slipper, it's going to startle you whether you're a Christian or an atheist or whatever. 
And then there are moods like joy, peace, thankfulness. They do involve our thoughts and beliefs. We can also talk about attitudes like compassion and love. They're really more like character traits than moods. I think that way of categorizing our emotions is helpful to a certain extent. But in reality, it's not all that helpful because emotions do not come to us one at a time, not usually anyway. So they're not easy for us to analyze. Anybody is going to be startled by a mouse in their slipper. But if I'm already feeling wound up or afraid before the mouse jumps out at me, well, then I might burst into tears or I might have a complete meltdown. I might even go looking for someone to blame for the mouse in my slipper. Who put it there? Or if I'm already feeling giddy and hilarious before I get my slipper, then I might start laughing hysterically when the mouse jumps out. It might seem like the funniest thing ever. In other words, there's usually a complex mix of things going on with our emotions all at the same time. Emotions rarely come in single file. Someone has helpfully, I think, compared our emotions to streams of different colored paint that are all flowing into a bucket at the same time. And we see that in Jesus' life. In Matthew chapter 23, for example, we're not going to turn there, but it's worth, it's a chapter that's worth having a look at. At the start of that chapter, Jesus lays into the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He really lets them have it. He calls them snakes. He calls them a brood of vipers. That chapter is a masterclass in how to insult people. But by the end of the same speech, Jesus is pouring out one of his most compassionate laments for those same people. He says to them, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Winston Smith says about that chapter, Jesus' love for the people of God leads him to be furious with the corruption of their leaders. That same love simultaneously leads him to deeply grieve that those leaders are blind to what could heal them. This is full throttle anger, heart-wrenching compassion, and profound grief pouring together from Jesus' heart for the very same people. We find a similar mixing of emotions in the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians, he describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's complicated. Emotions don't tend to come one at a time. Most of the time, we have a mixture of them, all like different streams of paint flowing into the same bucket at the same time. Winston Smith goes on to say, there is no shut-off to this process. Your heart is never going to stop pouring emotion into your life. The way to answer the question, how are you feeling, 
is going to be your attempt to capture all those swirling, intermingling colors in one big summary. So, on a particular day, you might be simultaneously elated at your exam results and a little bit terrified at starting the next stage of your life and a little bit sad to be leaving the last stage of your life behind and a little bit excited about what you're having for dinner and a little bit irritable because you didn't sleep well last night. All of those emotions can be sloshing around in your emotional bucket at the same time. Plus, your upbringing and your personality might mean you have some emotional jets that pour more powerfully than others. You might have a natural tendency to feel more bright or to feel more gloomy. So you may have a default color jet that's always pumping into your bucket along with everything else. The first thing that makes emotions complicated is that they're like a paint mixer that never shuts off. That's not bad. That's what we saw in Jesus' life and Paul's life. That's how God designed our emotions to work. But it does make them complicated. Another reason they're complicated is that they are connected to our bodies. Alistair Groves says, your emotions are always going physical, hanging out flashing signs in the form of frowns, grins, tears, sweat, racing heartbeats, surging adrenaline, spiking body temperatures, clenched, clenched jaws, tense shoulders, and dilating pupils, announcing that something has happened to something you care about. It's no accident that so many cliches about emotions are descriptions of something happening to your body. We all know what it means when the blood drains from someone's face, someone has a sinking feeling in the pit of the stomach, or someone's body feels light and energized enough to walk on air. Why does that truth make our emotions complicated? It makes them complicated because it can seem that our bodies are taking over at times. That's not necessarily bad. If we're being attacked, for example, a surge of adrenaline can be a very, very helpful thing. It can be exactly what we need to get out of the situation. On the other hand, we've all heard people say that when they got angry, a red mist descended. What they mean is it felt like they couldn't help the violent thing or the harsh thing they said when that red mist descended. The violent thing they did, maybe. People who have been through very traumatic experiences can end up with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's not a new thing, but maybe we're more aware of it recently. Where someone's body has almost been trained to go into immediate full throttle reactions when they're reminded of those past traumas. The other extreme is when someone's body reacts to trauma by going into shock, shutting down emotions altogether. 
person goes emotionally numb. And they might stay that way for a long time. So the bottom line is, we are complex, embodied souls, biological and spiritual. And both dimensions must be acknowledged and connected. That means, as Christians, we recognize that in some cases, medication can have a part to play in managing our emotions. We recognize also that brain chemistry and psychology have important insights for us. To deny that would be to deny that we are embodied souls, both biological and spiritual. But, having just said that, as Christians, we do not look to brain chemistry to provide the deepest insights into our emotions. Nor do we look to medication or psychology to provide the deepest solutions to our emotional problems and struggles. Winston Smith says this, understanding the mechanics of the brain is not the same as understanding how to live rightly before the Lord. While it can help to know what's going on in your brain or glands, the deepest whys of emotions are not the neural pathways they travel. Instead, the deepest whys are the things Scripture is constantly pointing to. The love and worship of your heart and your bearing the image of an emotional God. We were made to respond with love for what is good and hatred for what is evil. In other words, we are open as Christians to the insights science can give us about our emotions. But those emotions will never be as significant as what our Creator has revealed to us in Scripture about our emotions. Next time, we'll focus on the fact that our emotions actually reveal the state of our heart. Someone has said, your body is the vehicle through which the passion of your soul flows. And like any vehicle, our body might have all sorts of physical glitches. It might need various physical repairs. But what's more significant is what is powering it. That matters much more than how smoothly the vehicle runs. Does it have the right kind of fuel in the tank? When it comes to our bodies, what is most significant is, are they powered by God-honoring, God-glorifying passion? Or by some other passion? God is less concerned with how well our body runs as he is with what it's running on, what is fueling it. And that brings us to a third and final factor that complicates our emotions. They are disordered by sin. Christopher Ashe talks about a time when his wife brought home some flower tubs that had been made out of an old whiskey barrel. And she asked him if he would drain some, uh, drill some drainage holes in that barrel. It had been cut in half so that she could put her flowers into it. And he says that every hole he drilled, wherever he drilled it, 
released the powerful whiff of whiskey. This is what he says about it. The whiskey had seeped into every fiber of the wood. Wherever you drilled, you would find it. In the same way, human sin has seeped into every fiber of human personhood. Our minds, our hearts, our feelings, our bodies, our desires, all alike are impregnated with sin. And this includes our feelings. We do not feel as we ought to feel. Sometimes we are happy at others' misfortune or sad at their success. We do not want what we ought to want. Our loves are disordered. We love what we ought to hate and we shun what we ought to desire. What that means is, while emotions are a good gift from God, we often feel the wrong emotions at the wrong time. That's our problem. Or we can feel the right emotion, but to the wrong degree. For example, it's fine, I believe, for me to feel joyful when my football team does well. I don't think that's wrong. I think it's appropriate. But isn't it the case that often my joy over that far exceeds my joy over my salvation? That's a sign my emotions are disordered by sin. I'm feeling an appropriate emotion about my football team. It's okay to feel joy. But I'm feeling it to an inappropriate degree. If I find more joy in that than I do in my salvation. Or again, it's natural for us to feel disappointment about missing out on something. Maybe a job that I had set my heart on, maybe the end of a relationship. Disappointment is natural. But if that disappointment cripples me, if it makes me feel like I can't go on, that's a sign my emotions are disordered by sin. I'm feeling an emotion that's perfectly appropriate, but I'm feeling it to an inappropriate degree. I realize, coming to the end of this, I haven't yet offered much in the way of help when it comes to reordering our disordered emotions, but I think it's important at the very beginning to try and understand our emotions. And it's crucial for us to see that they're both good and complicated. Next time, we'll take it a few steps further. We'll see that our emotions are also powerful. We'll see that they are not the main thing. And we'll see that they are mirrors of the heart. So we'll look at that in a month's time. But at this stage, are there any questions coming from what I've said? Something that you want to comment on personally or add to, disagree with? <laughs>